You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Richard Cadry is the New York Times bestselling author of the Sandman Slim series. Some of his other books include the recent short story collection, The Secrets of Insects, The Grand Ark, and Butcher Bird. He's written for film and comics, including Heavy Metal Lucifer and Hellblazer. He also makes music with his band A Demon and Fun City and Alone as Seven Bloodstained Orchids. His new books are The Dead Take the A-Train, co-written with Cassandra Kaw and The Pale House Devil. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's start out with The Dead Take the A-Train. You know, it's the beginning of a series. You just got off a, a, a series that took up a significant chunk of your life. It's a, yes. they are a wonderful series. What made you jump right back into writing a new series? Well, it, it had actually been a couple of years since uh, Sandman Slim ended. And it really just came about because uh, Cass, Cassandra Kaw, and I decided it might be fun to write together. Uh, I had the very basic idea of Julie Cruz and the, the story, and we fleshed the rest out together. And it was just a lot of fun to do. But... Um, yeah, it's it. It didn't it didn't seem like a big deal at the time to like, hey, let's start another series. It um, was just this the natural way to go with Julie. She had a big story to tell, so it made sense. You know, one of the things about that book that I love, and it's, I mean, right out of the gate, is you give us a great monster, and not only like a really creepy, physical, monstrous monster with eyes and mouths everywhere and slime, excess of slime, this monster has a character. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the most outstanding things. Usually, I think since Jaws, one of the things that Jaws did was it popularized the monster genre in a way, but it also turned the monsters into characterless killing machines and mm -hmm. essentially that becomes quickly uninteresting whereas when you have a monster that's kind of like a giggling young girl trying to pull off a, a trick on its mother which is what we get in the opening of the dead take the a-train it is outstanding talk about turning slimy monsters into characters who are just as slimy on the inside as they are outside well, that was part of the idea. We didn't want any kind of dead dead space, dead time with the creatures in our story. Everything in the story is alive and sentient in some way. And as you said, that does make for a much more interesting story. Um, yeah, the, the, the dumb killing machine isn't interesting to either of us. And for me... Um, a lot of the interesting monster idea comes from Clive Barker and Hellraiser and his original story, the, the, um, not the telltale heart, 
the uh, I'm completely blanking on the original title of Hellraiser when it was a story. The Hellbound Heart. The Hellbound Heart. Thank you so much. From a fantastic series uh, from Dark mm -hmm. Harvest. God, I've lived for those books for many years. I'd drive out to a bookstore in Fullerton that had them, and it was my weekly stop to buy oh, horror. <laughs> yeah, that, that um, Barker had a lot of influence on me. So when it, when it comes time to create monsters, either in The Dead Take the A-Train or my own work there's always some kind of character even the monster the sort of cosmic horror in the pale house devil has a personality it doesn't show it necessarily in its interactions with human beings but you know there are chapters in which the monster is musing to itself about the nature of being a monster and those are extremely entertaining. I can't tell you how much fun they are to read. You know, in The, the Dead Take the A-Train, talk about setting up Julie Cruz and her crew. I think they're a wonderful crew, and you do a great job of bringing them into focus. Um, and, and I'm thinking of the, the owner of her apartment, for who she rents her apartment for from is really that's a great character but you uh ratchet back you do it very uh, slowly but entertainingly thank you uh yeah julie has a little crew saint joan is the character you're talking about the owner of julie's apartment house no one no one quite knows how old saint joan is or where she comes from She's just St. Joan, and she's been there a long time. All anyone knows, really, is that she was a movie star in the 20s. And she still looks like she's probably 30 to 35 years old. I think of her as Lauren Bacall. And uh, then there's uh, Dead Air, Julie's uh, friend, who also has a um, magical power, who would rather be playing video games, but also has connections to powers that uh, are magic related to technology he can control machines he can control computers if you go to the hospital with no insurance and dead air is your friend suddenly the hospital is going to see that you have insurance all because of the all because of the computers you know one of the things i really love is the the sensibility of magic in and the supernatural in the dead takes take the a train it seems so every day to the characters and it's mm -hmm. set up in a very logical way i imagine you guys had to do a fair amount of a scaffolding to to get set that up or what did it just uh did you just make up as it goes that was a lot of development and it took place over several iterations of the book we worked on the book a lot there were uh, like three drafts before we sent it in to the publisher and then probably two more after that to get things right um in the end each of us probably wrote about three hundred thousand words trying to get the novel right because what we discovered when we start writing it um is the logical thing you first think of is we'll all we'll alternate chapters and then go back and edit, you know, edit the whole thing to give it a singular voice. Well, that was a disaster. 
that didn't work at all because of our timing. So I'd write a chapter, then Cass, who has a day job as a as a high powered uh, you know narrative person in the game industry, would take a little extra time to get their chapter done, and I needed their chapter to move on to my next one, and then it, it, the timing was just off. So what we realized is each of us had to write a huge chunk of the book hand it off to the other person and then let them go over it so basically as i said we probably wrote the book three times each of us going over it before uh the publisher even saw it and then they had a million edits on top of it which drove us crazy but we're but in the end really helped the book it sounds like uh the book itself was uh <clears throat> kind of frankenstein creation yeah but i think it turned out a bit better than frankenstein a lot uh <laughs> A lot smoother and a lot happier. You don't quite see as many scars. <laughs> yeah, there's as, no stitches. Uh, you can't see that, but you um, don't see the stitches. They're there, but you don't see them. You know, one of the things I really liked about the the dead take of the A train, it is incredibly intense and fast paced, and yet as you read it, it's. On one hand, it's a set, super satisfying narrative in itself, yet it really sets up a big world and a big mm-hmm. series and a big story. How much of that story did you know in advance? And how much did you just create blank scaffolding and say, well, we'll figure this out as we go through the series? I had a basic outline of the book where, where the, like you know, a lot of the big beats within the book itself. But then a lot of it came out of discussions with Cass and the writing of the book itself. Um, I had a lot of experience with Sandman Slim creating a large world full of magic. Uh, So I I kind of knew how to do that stuff. But then developing, you know, how the characters would fit into that, how New York would fit into that was something we worked on together. So it was a combination of uh, a lot of planning and then discovery along the way. You know, New York is a great character in this novel, and I can see Mm -hmm. it's going to play a big part in the series. Talk about recreating the city as a hotbed of supernatural action. I mean, I would be somewhat afraid to go to New York after reading this book just because... In itself, it's such a complicated and busy city. You could really easily imagine all the things that are hidden in the book and that you bring forth being there. Well, New York is a big, intense city, and you have to learn to live with it. New York is an animal. You will. It's a. It's a bit of a wild animal. You will never tame it, but you can come to live with it, like uh, you know, urban foxes in London. So what you have to do is come to terms with living with something wild and brilliant and complicated. And if you do that, New York is one of the best places on earth. Uh, But if you don't, if you try to force New York into some other form, if you ignore what New York wants to be, it will, it can eat you alive. And we wanted to play with that idea. I, Cass and I both love New York. And I, I'm, I'm afraid sometimes people who think 
that the book is anti-New York. They're they're getting it wrong. New we're 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 championing New York. We love the place. It's just not somewhere you're gonna live live, like I said, easily if you want New York to be something else. Let New York be New York and you'll fit in fine. You know, one of the things too that you guys do really well is develop uh, Julie's character with her friend or friend's husband. Talk about, you know, creating that character arc, which is really wonderful because it's filled with a joy and happiness and, and you know there's a really a strong love between her also between dead air and saint joan i mean these people mm-hmm. are become very quickly strong friends that the reader loves to be with no matter which character you're you're mm-hmm. talking about yeah i mean it, it, with all the monsters with all the magic with everything else there is a story about a group of people who care about each other deeply. At the beginning of the book, you you meet Julie, who has a lot of uh, bad habits, let's say. Um, she loves, loves her vodka, loves her Coke, loves her other drugs, um, which has nothing to do with, with what I did in my 20s, of course. Um, and she believes because of incidents in her life the fact her life has gone off the rails um she can't make a living with all her power as a magical person she keeps being defeated by bad clients her ex uh tyler who left her to sort of join the new york wall street crowd and throws julie jobs every now and then which is nice but he underpays her and then takes credit for all the danger, most dangerous jobs she does. So Julie can't get ahead. She's formed bad habits. Um, but over the course of the book, Julie comes to learn or to understand that she is someone worthy of love. And that comes through Sarah and her friends. The monsters in this book are not just slime-covered, you know, critters, which I love, but also Dan and Tyler are really wonderful characters and pieces of work, and I think you do a good job at setting them up, you know, at slightly different levels of awfulness. But so talk about, it doesn't seem like somebody was having a lot of fun doing Dan and Tyler. Yeah, the, I mean, when you're writing terrible people, um, that's a lot of fun. And Dan and Tyler are terrible people. You know, there there is the fun part of writing awfulness, but then there's a serious part too. These are bad, abusive characters. And, you know, for the most part, the guys in this story don't come off well. Dead Air is a big exception. But part of the book uh, is that just developed over time was that the most powerful people in the book, the guys, Dan and Tyler mostly, um, were basically pieces of shit because they're the control freaks. They're the climbers. 
you know, um, Dan is simply a one of those guys who likes to control the people in his life. He is Sarah's ex. He wants to control Sarah. So when she leaves him, runs off to New York, Dan comes after her in a really frightening way. Tyler is a kind of a representative of the worst part of New York. Tyler is a social climber. Tyler is a money grubber. Tyler wants to climb to the top of his corporation, Thorn and Dirk, and will do anything to get it. I mean, which is part of one of the uh, reasons we set the book in New York. I mean, I've written a lot about L.A., but L.A. is a city of dreams and dreamers. You go to L.A. to reinvent yourself. New York is a city of power and commerce. You become more of what you are there. You know, uh, L.A. is a city of dreamers. L.A. is, a, uh, excuse me, New York is a city of schemers. That's the easiest way to put it. And we wanted to emphasize that with both Dan and Tyler. It, it's really an accomplishment to have characters who are who are in every way repellent, yet we enjoy seeing them just to see, you know, Julie deals, the way she deals with them is really wonderful. So uh, talk about, you know, creating conflicts that aren't just, you know, uh, don't just end up in fisticuffs, but extend over time and involve mind games, power games, games of all sorts. Well, that's how some relationships go. I mean, there is always a power dynamic in every relationship and people like Dan and Tyler want to control everything in their environment. So Dan, um, Julie's relationship with Tyler is very fraught and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll never be mended. And, you know, her effort to get away from Tyler is a good chunk of the book. And she would probably have never quite made it except for her friends, again, especially Sarah. And it's interesting. I think the other interesting part about Dan and Tyler is they're terrible people. But I think they're interesting in the way Walter White was in Breaking Bad. You don't have to love these main characters, but if they're interesting enough, it's it's nice to watch that watch them in their world, see how they do things, watching them manipulate the people around them and, and gathering strength and gathering the forces they want to accomplish their crooked goals. You know, what's also refreshing about them is there's an idea, and it's often there's a grain of truth to it, that, you know, some people who are extremely evil and bad and whose presence in the world causes nothing but grief for the world and those around them think see themselves as good, see themselves as helping people, and ultimately. Mm -hmm. Dan and Tyler, no. <laughs> No, not at all. Not at all. You know, both Cass and I have worked in um, corporations, in corporate structures, and we both know what those look like and feel like. And there was nothing we wanted to portray in the book about, you know, everyone here at the corporation is a family. 
It's like, no, no, they're not. They're there to get power. They're there to get money. They're there to get whatever they can out of it. So neither of us had any illusions uh, about what the working world in, in corporations was like. So it was easy for us to work off our own experiences in a way, because we both, like I said, we've both been there and we both endured nonsense over years and years. You know, too, also the ties between the idea of, a, you know, a corporation and New York finance. At first one might say that involving that with Lovecraftian monsters and all varieties of magic is kind of counterintuitive, but you make it seem like all natural. <laughs> I mean, one cannot read the finance pages after reading this book and think the same things about the people who are being spoken of. Yeah, I don't think it's counterintuitive at all. I think it's absolutely natural. I think that kind of power, that kind of money, there's some eldritch aspect to the to that level of you know uh, billionaire social clubs all people beyond anyone who's made enough money has blood on their hands and that's what i think dan and tyler represent um in that in that corporate setting um like I said, uh, the closer you get to billionaires, the more underground cosmic horror you're going to find. Because whether they know it or not, I think those forces are propelling them forward. Uh, well, you know, also, too, uh, for a book that's filled with, uh, you know, a fairly large amount of awful behavior by humans and other critters, this book is really fun to read and I think you do a, a good job at not turning your characters into, you know, wisecracking joke joke machines, but to turn to show kind of I guess the wedding of absurdity and humor and horror. Well when you oh I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and horror. Yeah. Any horrible situation is going to bring out black humor in both the characters and the situation. Talk to cops, talk to EMTs, talk to firefighters. They all have a black sense of humor. And I think especially Julie, who's been through so much, who's fought monsters, who's fought, you know, human monsters and monster monsters and come out very scarred is going to have uh, a sense of humor and probably uh, a messed up one. So it, it was inevitable that there would be some sense uh, of humor in the book. Plus, you know, you have to let up on people sometimes, uh, especially in the course of a novel. When I'm writing short stories, I can be pretty awful all the time. But that's just a few, that's 5,000 words. But over the course of a long novel, you need some breathing room. And letting Julie have those moments was a good way to let the characters, the plot, and the readers 
take a moment, have a breath, regroup, and move on to the next level of complication, probably awfulness. You know, for a book that's filled with monsters and vile human beings, uh, this book has a very sweet and almost uh, kind of chaste romance at, at the center of it. And I think that really works well. It's, you know, you take it to the right level. The, the way it's done is, is extremely nice. Talk about creating, you know, the romance and, you know, the kind of joy of new love as a counterpoint to, you know, the the cavalcade of awfulness that, you know, is Wall Street, whether or not the Lovecraftian monsters are there. Yeah, as the book opens, Julie is going through, is submerged in her bad habits, um, doing jobs on the cheap, being messed over by clients, by uh, Tyler. And one day, uh, as a surprise, her friend Sarah shows up at her door saying, hey, she's just in New York visiting and maybe she'll stay with Julie for a while. The thing is, Julie and Sarah have kind of been in love since they were teenagers, but neither of them could express it. Neither of them could quite admit it. And over the course of the book, which is told from, you know, uh, most of it's from Julie's point of view, what that relationship is comes across slowly because it's a big deal at this point in her life for Julie to believe in the concept of love and that she is uh, worthy of love and that anybody is capable of loving her considering what a mess she is. So there is a slow burn in their relationship, but in the end they are, devoted to each other in in pretty much every way. Now, I thought this book did a masterful job at telling a story in itself that was one story, but just ejecting the reader into this big universe that you've created. How far are you into the second book? And how many, do you know how many books are in the arc? Well, right now we've only signed up to do two. So we're working on the second one right now. And uh, that's slated for 2025. And, you know, we'll see what happens then. If people like the second book, people seem to like the first one. If it sells, great. We'll do the second book if it sells, great. If If the two books together sell, maybe we'll do a third or a fourth. You know, books are great, but in the end, this is the publishing business. If, you know, you don't make it, if you don't make your money back, there's no more books. And I've had that happen with series that were supposed to go on. My book, The Grand Dark, was supposed to have a sequel. People liked the book, but it didn't sell. So no sequel to that. Oh, man, that was, a, that was awesome. <laughs> oh, I mean, thank you. I, I love that book. What is thank the you. matter with these publishers? I got to wonder, because, well... That's a subject for a separate time. You know, you also have another book out that's The Pale House Devil. This is also Mm -hmm. a setup for a series. And I love this one just as much. It's rather different. This is on the L.A. side. And first and foremost, let 
me thank you for mentioning my hometown of Covina, California. Oh, I spent great. many unfortunate years there. <laughs> when we moved there, I was in fifth grade. My mother mm-hmm. had moved there the week before. She said, there are these beautiful mountains. We could not see them for the smog for about yeah. a week. We did not believe yeah. her. <laughs> Cannot see those mountains. Oh, wait. Those are, there are mountains there. <laughs> yeah. So, I had the same experience in LA when I first moved there. It was like the first, literally the first couple of weeks I was in there. We, we were in smog alert uh, territory. And then one day, I think it, there might've been rain. All the smog washed away. And I went out of my apartment and looked in the distance and like, holy shit, there are mountains there. I had no idea. I thought LA was just completely flat where I lived. And then all of a sudden there's, there's, there are these things rising in, uh, in the distance, which is all, you know, which is a little bit Lovecraftian in itself to see a whole ancient landscape just appear before your eyes. So yeah, LA, LA was, uh, I love LA too. Um, but the pale house devil is another book. That's also about New York, but there's a lot of travel in Pale House. The uh, Ford and Neuland, who are the two killers in the book, two hitmen, mess up a job in New York. And to get away from the repercussions, flee to California and start looking for jobs there to kind of get their careers going again. And what happens is they take a job with uh, a rich family with a horrible patriarch who wants them to rid his house of a cosmic horror. The setup for the two killers is that Ford is alive, but Neuland is dead. And so they've divided the job up simply. Ford kills the dead. Neuland kills the living. And that's how their world works. But when they get to this last job, the pale house, where the, a lot of the action takes place, they find a creature that is, that is neither alive nor dead, and they have to figure out what to do about it. It's something they've never encountered before. You know, you were referring earlier to the passages written from the point perspective of that creature. And I just have to say, I love those so much. They're so interesting. It's really fun to read. Uh, you get into the mind of a creature that is extremely alien to human, to the human world. It doesn't even really understand where it is exactly. And that's, you know, yeah, when we when humans see it, it seems awful, awesome, terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like you are really having fun, and when the writer has fun, boy, the reader has fun. Yeah, the monster was was fun to write in that one. I mean, on the one hand, it's a vicious monster that does wants nothing more in, in life than to eat people. Yeah, that's just it's just a fun activity for it, and it's hungry all the time. And on the other hand, it's kind of dismayed because it was drawn into this world by some of the people in this family and it has no idea where it is or why it's there and so there's a level of kind of monster being pissed off 
at its circumstances, which makes people even taste even better. So you have a bewildered, angry thing uh, from another cosmic horror, but it, it, it's kind of kicking back like a, like an angry child in a lot of ways. And equally evil and awful is the patriarch who, yes. who hires a, a new lender and board, uh, Manfield. That guy is the lowest scum of the earth. I mean, yes. Chris, you ought to write and run for president of the United States. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a piece of trash and he is to some degree based on a couple of people I've met, a couple of people I've read about who, you know, they're very old money. And so they don't have to behave by normal human conventions. And they're kind of, uh, kind of proud of it, that their awfulness is another sign of their wealth and power. So he really revels in just being terrible. And when he hires Ford and Neuland, he has no no hesitation in letting them know how awful he is and how what he considers them to be, which are just kind of janitors that he wants to clean up their his mess. You know, one of the things that I loved about this book was it seems really crisp and clean. It's a, it's a novella, about 170 pages, and, and I love the writing on it. It's very like almost a I would describe minimalistic. Uh, mm-hmm. Is is minimalism formal minimal, minimalism uh, an influence on your work? Yeah, and with this book in particular, I, I I write minimally sometimes in my own novels and in my own stories. But for the pale the pale house devil, I wanted to strip everything down to its simplest. It was it was kind of an experiment when I started out to see how simple I could make the prose and still tell the story. So that's one of the reasons it, it moves along so quickly, I think. I think it's one of the ways it's fun for people is that you can read the book, you know, in a couple of different ways, but it's almost because of its simplicity, almost like a very weird fucked up fairy tale. You know, too, um, it reminds me, you you really nail the kind of the pulp noir feel of it. Uh, I read a few books that were published by a fellow named Dennis Millen, mm-hmm. and he published, specialized in publishing, you know, old 50s um, uh, noir writers. And they were, this is really good, this book, uh, Minus the monster, but the monsters fits in well with it. Um, could easily fit into that genre. No, thank you very much. That's what I was uh, working on, very very consciously with that book, and and in the second book too, it has the same kind of tone, the same kind of prose. Everything is lean. Everything is what it needs to be, without being uh without getting floored without running off track the book is like i said 
another fairy tale with guns and monsters. Also really enjoyable in, in this book is the, the third person in the equation, Trixie, who... Tilda. Tilda, who joins them together. Talk mm-hmm. about creating uh, Tilda. I love Tilda. Um, she is from the family the, the, that um, wants uh, for Noyland to get rid of the monster, but she's someone who's been raised in the household and has been one of those people who's never been off the chain. Um, Mansfield has controlled her her whole life. So when Ford Neuland show up, she finds these people who are fascinating, dangerous, and forms of chaos that she's never met before. And she's just drawn to them in a very strong way and kind of becomes a third member of the team. And in fact, Tilda shows up in book two, furthering her story. So I I like Tilda a lot. I like her growth. And she gets to grow more in the second book. You know, too, one of the things that struck me as I read this book is the plotting is so tight and crisp and clear. You know, it... It keeps you guessing, but as you guess, it's like full unfolding a very intricately folded origami. We see the mm. whole thing, and as we kind of read through it, we pull apart the different levers and see how it's all put together. And the pleasure of you know putting together that puzzle as a reader is really enjoyable. Talk about creating you know this crisp plot that's perfect for your one and a half hour. A monster thriller film. I'm hoping that's coming to a theater near me real soon. Yeah, I wanted to create something very simple, but something that had multiple levels to it. So we're going uh, a very straightforward story. We're getting little bits of the past. We're getting the monster's point of view. We're getting Noyland's story, which is a very strange one. And everything folds together in the end. But again, having these very simple puzzle pieces that that take a few minutes for you to figure out where they go together. But the past, the other dimensional creatures and the present all fold into one whole that I, I hope is satisfying, I think makes sense in the end. And, you know, I'm pretty happy with now you you've already got the, the second book written. When will it come out? Uh, the second book is just about done. Um, I, with luck, it's almost Thanksgiving as we do this. Um, with luck, I'll have it done next week, and I don't have a publication date. Uh, sometime in twenty four. The sooner the better. Now, mm. you've written for a film before. Is there yeah. any hope that I, either of these, the, the Dead Take the A-Train or the Pale House Devil? I mean, <clears throat> that thing just reads so much like a movie I would I would line up to see twice right away. Um, what I can tell you is I can't tell you anything. <laughs> well, that's, that's good. That's, that's where things stand. You know, everything in the world has NDAs, and that's all I can say about any of that. Now, 
as I read these novels, I like to have background music, and I mm-hmm. certainly chose uh, your two releases, Seven Bloodstained Orchids and A Demon in Fun City. These are wonderful books to read, wonderful backgrounds to read your books to. Mm, are you working you. on more releases? Yes. Um, Nothing for Seven Bloodstained Orchids right now, my solo project, but A Demon in Fun City. We're developing some new songs for that. We've released one album, and that's on Bandcamp, Apple Music, pretty much anywhere you want to get your uh, music. It's on YouTube. So you can find it a lot of places where you can just listen to it or you can buy it, whatever you want to do. We are working on some new stuff right now as a follow-up to the first album. And we're really having a good time with that. You know, um, we both have um, um, BC and I, BC Smith is my partner in A Demon in Fun City. And he's also a film composer. And I'm also a writer. So basically, we work around each other's schedules, which is fine because we work in, we do all of our music uh, in Logic Pro on the computer, which means once we're done with the preliminary version of a song we can then hand it off to the other who can then start modifying it so there's no real time limit on how these things are put together we can bounce a piece of music back and forth endlessly until we're satisfied with it and i'm very grateful for that process because frankly my keyboard Uh, abilities are pretty limited so if it wasn't for logic pro and computers i don't know if i'd be playing music right now i used to play a little guitar i used to play keyboards really well but i had a freak out in my 30s and just decided music was uh, a a bad thing for me Uh, i can't quite explain what happened but i had a little breakdown and so i sold off all my equipment and ignored music for years now that i'm back I'm sort of getting my chops back a bit and, but more than playing flashy stuff, I'm more interested in composing these days. So something can be very simple and layered. Uh, I don't have to be Keith Emerson. I'm happy to be more in the lust mord area of music. Your music is all done virtually. You, you don't use any, uh, synthesizers analog or, or digital is that mm-hmm. something you're you might be getting into because i can tell you that there's a lot of really fun stuff out there uh, i've played with synthesizer i owned a couple of synthesizers and i ended up selling them all i have synthesizer i have virtual synthesizers in logic pro that i use very very simply but I don't want anything to sound like a synthesizer. That's that's my goal at all times. I want all my sounds, and I think BC feels the same way, to sound natural, to not call, um, call interest to themselves by being gimmicky or... Again, uh, sort of Keith Emerson like. We don't. We 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 want the opposite of Keith Emerson. We want something that is more organic. Dan plays guitar. Excuse me, Dan. I'm thinking of another friend. Uh, BC plays guitar very very well. So there is some acoustic instruments in there too. But for me, 
it's a matter of finding sounds and manipulating sounds so that they call as little attention to themselves as possible. I think I always think of my part of the music as fog. I don't want anything more substantial than a deep, deep fog sound. I don't want lightning. I don't want thunder. I want a deep, deep fog that draws people into the mystery. In terms of, your, you know, you, you write across not just novels, but you also write uh, comics and for um, film. Do you have any new projects in either of those realms? Uh, I do have some projects in film. I'm not doing comics right now, but I do have uh, two film things going that, once again, I can't talk about. The thing about Hollywood is you have to remember it's Hollywood is the CIA. Everything is a secret. No one can know anything. And if you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, they will murder you. I have been speaking with Richard Cadry. His new novel with Cassandra Ka is The Dead Take the A-Train. His new novel on his own is The Pale House Devil. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.